Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Max Eden. He is research fellow at American Enterprise Institute, the author of Why Meadow Died, The People and Policies That Created the Parkland Shooter and Endanger America's Students. Uh, he spoke with us on charter schools about a year and a half ago here on the podcast. He's back again uh, on another subject. Uh, an article by him just came out in City Journal entitled A Landmark Civil Rights Lawsuit. This is our topic today. Welcome, Max. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, now those those titular words are pretty big. Uh, what what is going on here? Yeah, well, it's uh, those are pretty big words. And you know, full disclosure for the audience, I'm uh, I'm not a lawyer. That whole caveat being stated, uh, but the more interesting caveat to the, the term landmark civil rights lawsuit is that, uh, in my opinion, it's less of a landmark suit for what it could do for how it could change uh, the civil rights landscape and more of a landmark lawsuit because of why it had to be filed. Hmm, Uh, I don't necessarily expect that this lawsuit will go up to the Supreme Court and create some sort of fundamental change in civil rights enforcement practices in the United States of America. uh, But the fact that it was filed at all is all the evidence that you <laughs> could need uh, to recognize there has been a, a landmark shift in the way that civil rights law is being enforced by this administration. Hmm. All right, so who is the plaintiff? Who is the defendant? Uh, the plaintiff is a teacher in the Evanston-Skokie School District, School District 65 in Illinois. And this teacher, her name is uh, Stacy Beardsley, had previously filed a complaint uh, against her school district with the Office for Civil Rights, uh, the body that is charged with investigating and creating remedies for violations of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which is over uh, racial discrimination. This complaint had been filed in the Office of Civil Rights back in the summer of 2019, and what she was complaining about back then is what uh, I suspect most of your listeners are might at that point have been surprised by, but at this point have become kind of inured to, which are uh, these critical race theory-inspired practices that are obviously directly racially discriminatory, right? Um, a couple of the things that she complained to the administration, the Office of Civil Rights, about back in June of 2019 is, hey, my school district is separating staff by race. We are segregating staff by race. And then we are providing within racially segregated training, within racially segregated settings, 
uh, explicitly morally loaded racialist messaging, uh, telling teachers that to be less white is to be less racially oppressive, telling teachers that they must acknowledge that white identity is inherently racist, to tell them to denounce white privilege, and to tell them that if they do not agree with this stuff, if they do not denounce themselves on the basis of race, that then they are a racist. That was one of the complaints. Another complaint is that the school district explicitly told the school to treat students differently by race when it came to school discipline, uh, to take into account whether the student is black, white, or Hispanic when deciding how to handle that student's behavioral infractions. And, of course, there's also a substantial amount of uh, quote-unquote anti-racist curriculum that was being put in front of students, such as this book that's been getting kind of more notoriety, has been adopted in, in more uh, in more books and more schools across the country, which says whiteness is a bad deal. It always is. And uh, presents a contract to students that says, binding you to whiteness, you'll get stolen land, stolen riches, special favors. You'll get to mess endlessly in the lives of all your friends of color. Sign your soul away to get whiteness. Um, and she complained that in addition to school-sponsored segregation, <laughs> school-sponsored racist, racist messaging to teachers, there was also a, a racially hostile environment being created and sponsored by the school district. Uh, the reason why, you know, to kind of further explicate the thesis I gave at the beginning, the reason why I think this lawsuit represents uh, a landmark in the landscape of civil rights law in general is because the, uh, the Trump administration in January of 2021 uh, reached a finding that, yes, the school district did all of this. None of what I just said is really in dispute. And yes, this obviously violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, because Title VI of the Civil Rights Act is clear that you cannot discriminate on the basis of race. And when you separate students by race, when you scapegoat teachers, stereotype teachers, send what is easily recognizable as racist messaging uh, to students as truth, then you are in violation of federal civil rights law. Um, unfortunately, uh, shortly after January 20th, when the Biden administration issued its uh, executive order on racial equity, as they called it, the Office of Civil Rights took the possibly entirely historically unprecedented, we're still trying to run down if there's any precedent at all, uh, but possibly totally historically unprecedented step of suspending its own decision. <laughs> um, you know, change no finding of fact, it just decided that these things are no longer a problem. And so the reason why this lawsuit had to be filed is kind of the landmark uh, that needs to be understood, I think, by, by politicians, by the public when it comes to how civil rights law is being enforced, because frankly, there is nobody could possibly believe uh, that if a school district were segregating students by race and telling black students that they must confront, you know, their blackness and overcome their blackness and comparing blackness to all sorts of terrible negative things and assigning them books about how terrible their blackness is and telling school district, telling teachers to treat white students better than black students. Nobody could possibly believe the Biden administration would have suspended that decision, which means that the, the intelligible rationale for them suspending their decision is that they do not believe that civil rights law protects white students or teachers. 
which is a massive problem because you know federal civil rights law is primarily enforced by the Office of Civil Rights uh, and also the Department of Justice's Division of Civil Rights. There is a right to private action under Title VI under which this lawsuit has been filed, uh, and that is kind of uh, the same set of facts that this teacher took to Office of Civil Rights. She is now taking to an official court of law and seeking, uh, you know, declaratory relief, a remedy, like judges to issue remedies about it and a $1 penalty, but this frankly, you know, will not be enough to properly enforce civil rights law and to be relied upon uh, in the broader context of the rise of critical race theory and the way that our education system is succumbing to this new racist, racialist ideology. Uh, That's not going to be enough, but this is a first step, and the fact that it was filed at all should be a wake-up call to Anybody who cares about equality of the law and civil rights as we have kind of managed to achieve it in this country, despite great you know, trials and tribulations, uh, that it is no longer being enforced by the federal government to protect students, teachers, you know, possibly individuals more broadly, if they're white. You know, Max, let me come back to some of the uh, details of these programs that the teacher and that you pointed out. You say in your opening paragraph, these these exercises in race shaming, you mm-hmm. call it. You mentioned something called the privilege walk, and, and I've, I've, I've seen some of those uh, before. I've never participated in them. I, wouldn't, I, would, I would refuse to participate in any such thing. But you've, idea... you've never subjected your students to one, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, we, we won't go into that. <laughs> the, the, but you, you say treating people equally is a form of perpetuating racism. This, this is where the equity agenda is at today? It is. Um, and like that was, a, that was a direct quote from the, the petition that was filed. The equity agenda in some ways is, you know, to expand for any of your listeners who might not be familiar with what a privilege walk is, it's a kind of very Maoist technique where you line students up and then you kind of say, if you have two parents, take a step forward. If you're white, take a two, take two steps forward. If you have more than 20 books in your home, take a step forward. And uh, eventually you have a literal social stratification based on race and class characteristics that is not intended to make the students who are stepping forward because they <laughs> come from a, a stable two-family home where they're very loved and supported. And that's not to make them proud of that. It's to make them ashamed of that. Uh, and I would say it's also, you know, things that I, I didn't mention. Uh, one very important thing that I didn't mention within the piece I, I could have, but it, you know, one should only include so many things without getting too distracted. Uh, students, we're also taught that it is important to disrupt the Western nuclear family dynamics as the best slash proper way to have a family. So this, this equity agenda, as it's called, is not only kind of defined by this Ibram X. Kendi philosophy that uh, the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination, the only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. It's not only a call for uh, institutionalized racism against whites and to some extent Asian students. It's also part of an ideology that 
directly seeks to uh, discredit and tear apart the notion that a nuclear family is something to be aspired to. Um, and this is gets to the kind of the, the broader issue of critical race theory in schools that I think gets gets lost or missed amidst all of the frankly bad faith and dishonest rede- redefinings of it on the left or kind of piddling qualified defenses of it from the, the so-called center right in some cases. Mm-hmm. It really is uh, an ideology. And what parents have the biggest problem with is the sense that they are sending their kids to school and their kids are coming home from school, hating them and what they stand for. Uh, because the school is actively trying to subvert the value of parents. It is no longer acting in loco parentis. It is acting against <laughs> parentis. Uh, yeah. And there was a, a, a mom from my home school district of, of Beachwood, Ohio, where I went to school, K-12, who um, I quoted her in a piece that I did in The Examiner uh, on kind of the rise of parent activism against us. And she said, you know, because of this stuff, close to a close to a quote, Black kids are turning against white kids of all ages, and white kids are coming home hating their parents, hating their heritage, hating their success. Uh, so it's it's not only you know an equity agenda of a trying to achieve equal outcomes through active discrimination. It's also something deeper than that that is actually kind of anti-family, anti-anti-tradition, uh, anti-West in the most in the broadest possible sense of that term. I imagine that uh, these practices are going to get shot down in court unanimously. Do you? Uh, well, yes, but there's a question as to, like, what does that do? What does that mean, right? I, I would like to be wrong in underestimating the possibility for this to be, like, a, a landmark case for its possible salutary effect, right? I would love to hear, see a federal appeals court explicitly say that all of these practices obviously violate the Constitution um, and that schools should not do them. But there's still the question of, like, is that going to work at the end of the day? Because, uh, you know, there's a lot of inertia in school districts. There's a lot of buy-in to this culturally. And another kind of idea that I did not get into in this piece, because I can only do one, one thing at a time, um, the non-enforcement of civil rights law is, is one problem, and it's a bad problem, but it might not be the worst problem that we face on this front under the Biden administration. I frankly suspect and almost expect that when Catherine Lehman, who is slated to, to return to the post of the Assistant Secretary for Justice and Civil Rights, takes the wheel, she will leverage civil rights investigations to coerce school districts to do equity audits and adopt practices that are like this. And I fear that you will see the federal government go from the non-enforcing of, you know, civil rights law to an active enforcement of the equity agenda through the tools, with the tools of civil rights law. And faced with that, I don't know if parent lawsuits citing a precedent set by this case is going to be sufficient. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. 
Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. So, I mean, I mean, Max, it would seem like this is just patently hostile environment situation uh, by by race and the the unequal treatment. But you're you're right. The you know courts can, can make a decision, but if it's not enforced, if you don't, if the very office charged with with upholding the Civil Rights Act is dedicated to violating it, what do you do? I mean, I mean, I gather that this turns into a political issue, and maybe the next question to ask here is, uh, do Republican leaders understand that this may be a big political win for them? Uh, it absolutely does turn into a political issue, and I think... I think that they're beginning to. I mean, uh, you've certainly seen enough articles from the mainstream media, which are all slated, you know, of course, the narrative is Republicans pounce, Republicans pounce, Republicans pounce. But they're not, in, <laughs> I mean, they're choosing to do that because that's what they always do. But that also suggests that Republicans are picking up on it. And frankly, it's it's hard to imagine an easier message to run on than hey, if you vote for us, your kids won't be shamed for their race in school. <laughs> um, and I think it, it's been very interesting, like watching at least the, the, the discourse debate play out, because it really does seem like, at least in, in the media sphere, folks on the left are changing their message on this week by week, trying to test out what will hold. Yeah. And it's not, it's not holding. So what I hope will happen. The one real possibility that I see, and this is part of what I'm going to be trying to turn some of my work and writing to in the fall, is, you know, the way that this is solved isn't through <laughs> begging the Biden administration to do something they don't want to do. It's not through expecting the courts are going to ride to the rescue. It is going to be by electing school board members that are elected on a mission to fight this stuff and to not allow it in their schools. Now the, yeah. And we're seeing a wave of activism. But the problem with that, of course, is that most school board elections, I think in about 75 percent of states, are off cycle. Right. The school board election in South Lake, Texas, that made some news, which Lowry wrote about the National Review. Uh, school board election in Pelham, New York, where my colleague Ian Rowe was elected to school board and anti anti-critical race theory platform it's hard to get interest it's hard to get turnout for an election that's in the second week of may yeah. if republicans are smart about this they will the next step the first phase is the, these wave of laws uh trying to, to quote unquote ban critical race theory the next step is to move school board elections on cycle and to allow partisan labels on the ballot because part of the reason we're here is that when these school board elections take place in uh, the second week of June, there are, with 7% turnout, school boards across the country are effectively decided in Democrat primaries. <laughs> hmm. um, if school board elections across the country, at least in red states and red districts, were decided in Republican primaries, this issue actually would be solved. They would be elected on a mission, know what their mission is, 
and be able to effectuate at the local level and stand up to the federal government if and when they go beyond non-enforcement to, to active anti-enforcement. My, my, my very narrow impression, admittedly, is that at these local levels that the democratic machine is much more effective uh, at, at, at getting people, say, on school boards than the Republican machine is. But no, it, it, it absolutely is. But they they're also it's it's it is both that it, they are more effective. I mean, they have union organizers um, and yeah. it's their it's their bread and butter and a clear, distinct professional interest for them to do so. But it's also the farthest thing from a fair and level playing field. Uh, and so if that playing field could be leveled, then in places that are 60, you know, R plus 10, R plus 20, uh, you could certainly have more than a fair shot at having the school board be representative of the district. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of forthcoming research uh, that I don't want to tease too much, but that will show that actually when more people can vote in school board elections, uh, the school board members become more representative of the people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, fancy that. It's a, a kind of common sense thing that uh, gives me some hope that it, it might not, you know, your 50-50 suburb, your your typical like purple swing district. Yeah, the Democrats would still be going into it with, uh, with an advantage, but yeah. it would go a long way. I noticed the other day that Randy Weingarten, the uh, the head of the uh, the AFT, the teachers, one of the teachers' unions, characterized uh, critical race theory as quote just teaching history and discussing racism. A nice benign characterization. Now, is you, you talked about messaging, going out there and trying that out. Is the the soft peddling the the real thrust of critical race theory? Do you think that's going to work? Uh, I don't think so, frankly. I think that people are starting to realize that they are being kind of mendaciously gaslit by by the media and by these people. Um, you know, that is not what what I discussed. You know, the things that I mentioned before. Though that's not just talking about racism. Um, that is proactively engaging in racism, and anybody who has kind of looked under the hood at all and seen any of this stuff and then hears that messaging coming down from uh, people like her, the media, school board members, it's going to, I think, just heighten a sense of distrust. I don't think it's going to be a conversation ender. Yeah. I think it's going to rile people up. I feel, hmm. and, and there's some debate of this in, in folks in my circles who have, have asked, like, you know, is critical race theory really the, the best label that we could have gone with to describe all this stuff? Because these school boards are saying we're not teaching critical race theory and the defining critical race theory is like what Kimberly Crenshaw wrote. But I, I suspect that when parents come to a school district with concerns about what's being taught, they label it critical race theory in a way that is actually perfectly supportable by critical race theory's own self-definition and then get told, oh, no, 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 we're not doing that. But that's not going to shut them up at the end of the day. That's actually yeah. going to strengthen their resolve and like spur more activism. The miscommunication, non-communication, I hope by and large, will actually accelerate the trend towards conservative activism on that. And and I imagine that when someone can hold up a a flyer that was distributed in one of these critical race theory orientation sessions, or when you've got a little video of a presenter doing the kind of shaming that you're talking about that uh that that uh 
that blows the, 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 the soft pedaling routine right out of the water. Yeah, I think so. And, and there's no, and there's no shortage of, uh, there's no shortage of things that can be pointed to, um, you know, non-locally and locally there, uh, you know, school districts, I've heard many cases where parents are trying to public records request and being stonewalled, but yeah. these things will come out networks form and, you know, they, as I say, the thing speaks for itself. What, what about the educational argument that I, I'm actually a little surprised that I haven't seen this, although may, maybe it has gotten out there, and that is that the critical race theory is crucial to the educational progress of African-American students um, because it, it, uh, it, it, you know, when, when we take down white privilege, it will raise the self-esteem of non-white students, and that's going to produce better, better educational outcomes. Has that been offered, and is anyone going to buy it? Uh, yeah, that has been offered. It's, it's kind of not the, the first line of defense uh, that's given, but it has been offered, and it's not, and there's actually, you know, I, it's, it's a strange thing to talk about because people can say, Hey, like there is this research of this course of program that you could plausibly that you could that is labeled ethnic studies and is informed by this stuff that shows positive outcomes. So therefore, this will uh, benefit students of color if we do this. Um, I I have seen people make that case. I'm familiar with the studies that they cite. I'm frankly not persuaded those studies are, are representative of what we're talking about <laughs> at all. It's kind of comparing, you know apples to just chaff and but uh the arguments it's made a little bit but i don't think it really lands because that's not the the source of complaints you know the source of complaints isn't we think that you're going about pedagogy in a way that is less than efficient for helping minority students it's we think that you're starting to teach in a way that is explicitly racially hostile against our students yeah uh, and so it's it's an argument that I've seen, but it, it's not going to make it into the debate because that's not where the complaint comes about. I will say, like, I've, I've, I was talking to a, a woman the other day who runs a nonprofit, uh, which will probably remain nameless, but works with a lot of low-income minority parents and families, helping them navigate public schools, private schools, charter schools, and just, you know, an auxiliary force for a lot of uh, African-Americans, a lot of recent immigrants who are trying to figure out how do I navigate this educational system and get the best education for my for my kid. And uh, she said, you know, nobody immigrates here from Nicaragua or Honduras or Guatemala and says, I'm, I'm, I came here so that my kid could be part of a culturally responsive classroom and follow the pedagogy of Gloria Latson Billings, who's been informed by Kimberly Crenshaw and Angela Davis. That's really why I immigrated to America. <laughs> Um, you know, there's not really a grassroots parent driven demand for this. This is much more downstream of a collection of kind of philanthropists, activists, advocates who spent 25, 30 years trying to reform the public school system, close gaps, realize that they couldn't and have decided to condemn the entire system and pat themselves in the back by watching others condemn it. And, hmm. you know. It's a very uh, supply, supply, artificially manufactured, supply-driven phenomenon, not anything that I think speaks to the aspirations of these parents. 
now, several states, Republican-dominated states, have uh, crafted legislation to ban critical race theory uh, activities. What is your what's your take on those state-level bans? Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, I am broadly in favor of them, um, and I am not at all sympathetic to many to almost all of the arguments that have been leveled against them in the in the public you know in the public realm i'll just give one example i had a piece in, in newsweek that went up today responding to the article in the new york times by david french and camille foster and jason stanley and, and thomas chatterton williams and they took aim at this tennessee bill and they said that this is a terrible bill because it says that students uh can't be taught anything that could lead them to make them that could lead them to feel uncomfortable and so they argue this is going to be a dagger to the heart of history instruction. How can you teach about Jim Crow uh, when students might have a grandparent who was kind of part of that system? That's going to make them feel terrible. Uh, and this would be a strong argument if it were directed against what the law actually said. But mm -hmm. they kind of invented their own meaning <laughs> to the law, deleted, elided very key words, assigned an entirely artificial meaning to it, and then argued against it. It was not... Uh, it was either kind of illiterate or not quite offered in uh, good faith and honesty. What the law said is that schools shall not teach the concept that, you know, students should feel guilty on account of their race. Um, it was saying don't preach racism, not don't mm. teach facts that might create racial, you know, discomfort amongst students. And so there are some, you know, that said, there are some bills that I think are, are better crafted than others. And I'm in the process of kind of reviewing it all and writing what I hope will be a, a useful set of recommendations and critiques. Uh, but most of these bills, to me, are fundamentally an effort to for the states to step up in civil rights enforcement. The way that I've kind of tried to say it in, in writing a couple of times is that we uh, we passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 because it became undeniably clear that some states, frankly, many states, would not truly enforce the 14th Amendment. Therefore, the federal government needs to step up and uh, enforce the Constitution and do it in a way that had not traditionally been done. Uh, we are now reaching, back to why I call this a landmark case, uh, a position where the federal government is no longer enforcing equal protection equally. They're at best enforcing equal protection unequally, at worst enforcing <laughs> unequal protection and unequally targeting certain groups. Uh, and so just as in 1964, the federal government had to step in to fill this longstanding festering breach, now too, the states have to step up to fill this breach that's been emptied by the federal civil rights apparatus. Most of these bills fundamentally our efforts to address the creation of a racially hostile environment by schools. They are like traditional civil rights provisions um, and tradition will hopefully get the states into the, these states into the business of civil rights enforcement, given that there, there needs to be some game in town, some enforcer. We can't rely on this, this brave teachers like Stacy and the nice folks of the Southeastern Legal Foundation to carry forward thousands of lawsuits. There needs to be an, an authority enforcing equal protection and non-discrimination. And so that's what these states are doing with these bills. The essay is in City Journal, and it's entitled A Landmark Civil Rights Lawsuit. Max Eden, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.